As you might know, there are three synoptic gospels in the New Testament and John, the fourth gospel. What sets them apart is that the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are in a way paralleling each other, but not exactly. But John is its own presence, and it tends to use more allegory and metaphor and poetry than the other three Gospels, which says more about the way people read and heard in those days than for us today, being that we tend to hear things more literally. May God open up to us an understanding of this word as it comes to us from the first chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 29 through 39. I'm reading from the translation known as the message. The very next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and yelled out, Here he is, God's Passover lamb. He forgives the sins of the world. This is the man I've been talking about, the one who comes after me but is really ahead of me. I knew nothing about who he was, only this, that my task has been to get Israel ready to recognize him as the God revealer. That is why I came here, baptizing with water, giving you a good bath and scrubbing sins from your life so you can get a fresh start with God. John clenched his witness with this. I watched the spirit, like a dove, flying down out of the sky, making himself at home in him. I repeat, I know nothing about him except this. The one who authorized me to baptize with water told me, the one on whom you see the spirit come down and stay, this one will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what I saw happen. And I'm telling you, there's no question about it. This is the Son of God. The next day, John was back at his post with two disciples who were watching. He looked up and saw Jesus walking nearby and said, Here he is, God's Passover lamb. The two disciples heard him and went after Jesus Jesus looked over his shoulder and said to them, What are you looking for? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He replied, Come and see for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. In this morning's passage, John has been giving testimony to his disciples about the one that he had seen when John baptized him and how, like a dove, the Spirit came down and lit upon him. For several days, John is giving witness to this, and on the second day, after his disciples are standing beside him, Jesus walks by and John says, Look, there he is, the one I'm talking about. So the disciples decided to follow. Apparently when John was around and even after, there was some confusion about 
their role. Some people thought that John was indeed the Messiah, and others knew or thought Jesus was. And so John goes out of his way to say, I'm not the one you're looking for. There he is walking by. So Andrew and Peter, it's John's version of their call story, leave John and follow Jesus on his way. Jesus notices them behind him and stops long enough to ask them the question, what are you looking for? It's a question that not only was asked then, but it resounds now through every generation and all of the time that has been presented before us, the 2,000 plus years, what are we looking for? Not only in life, but especially even now here in worship. Are we here to hear, are we here to hear some good music? Because we certainly have. Are we here to somehow find the God that is missing in our life? Are we here for fellowship and community? Are you here for maybe a little peace and quiet? When I was in seminary, we had chapel every day. Our three-month-old Megan had colic and was screaming every waking moment. We loved to go to church on Sunday because they had a great nursery and we could drop her off and have one hour in the week of peace and quiet. Maybe we're here just to find some sanctuary from a crazy world outside. But on some level, I hope we are here to transcend ourselves, however how much, to worship God with praise and thanksgiving. Only you can say why you are here. Mostly you tell me, and I've heard this a lot, that you were here to hear an encouraging and hopeful, uplifting and shorter sermon. And that's a good thing. But I can tell you this, if it's that you were here just to have your present understanding of life and truth and God confirmed, to get a ditto on what you already believe and know, to find some security by keeping things status quo, like always sitting in the same pew, then we are going to be quickly abused of that. Not by me, of course, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, for that is exactly what the power of the Spirit does. In every case, it inspires and invigorates and energizes the receiver of it to find a new way and a new possibility into life. It gets you out of your place and gets you moving to a new place. And this new place, of course, is what Jesus meant when he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Everything Jesus taught, every person he encountered, every healing episode, every sermon he preached, had this amazing grace and forgiveness built into it, but also 
a challenge. A challenge to get up and to become more fully who God has created you, us, to be in God's image. Someone once said that when the Spirit comes, it distresses the comfortable and comforts the distressed. Certainly that is true. Jesus loves us unconditionally and accepts us where we are, but will not let us stay where we are, because like every good parent, Jesus wants us to grow up emotionally and spiritually into the fullness of Christ. So I'm asking it again. Where are you? Why are you here? There are probably as many number of answers to that as you gathered. But I will tell you why Abraham Maslow says we are here. If you ever took a business class, then you learned about Maslow's needs hierarchy. I think it came out in the 1950s. Well, it was a, turns out, a 30-year process of evolution. He had five needs to begin with. He ended up with eight. The first is our basic biological need for food and water and warmth. Every organism needs that. Then comes safety and security from our enemies and from financial fear. The third one is that we need fellowship and relationship to love and to be loved. The fourth is that we need a sense of esteem and prestige and status. It's our basic ego needs. The fifth is this sort of cognitive reason. We are searching, learning, trying to understand life and our place in it. The sixth, he added, is the ascetic aesthetic reason, and that is that we are seeking for appreciating art and beauty. The seventh, self-actualization, that used to be his top one. And that's that personal fulfillment and meaning and purpose where we might even have some peak experiences in life. We have become self-actualized. And then he added at the end the eighth, transcendence, which is in a way the complete opposite of self-actualized. Because what he means by transcendent is that we transcend our own personal self-needs for the sake of serving others that they may become self-actualized. As I looked at Maslow's needs hierarchy, I found it interesting how our understanding of God and our needs for God track those needs in the hierarchy. Remember Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by the devil? The first temptation was you can turn these stones into bread. He'd been fasting for a long time. First need in hierarchical need, food and water. Jesus responded, man does not live by bread alone. The second temptation was power from the top of the temple where all the people would worship him. It met his esteem and status needs. And Jesus said no to it, too. And the third, complete self-actualization. 
He could have all the kingdoms in the world that he could now manage and control, for he was the king, the new king, the Messiah king. And Jesus turned that down too, because you see, what he knew his purpose and destiny to be was to transcend all of that through faith in God and a completely self-giving life that ended up on the cross simply so that we, we may become our true selves. Don't you find it interesting that the God that we have, or at least that we think we have, is sort of limited by the God that we think God is? Think about how small that God is then compared to God's transcendent, infinite, mysterious, holy other. We want God to be a God who gives food and water. That's about how big God becomes for us. And I'm not saying there's not a need for that. There is. We want a Domino's delivery God. We have an appreciation for art and beauty, yes. So God becomes the God of the sunsets and the sun-ups. An unbelievable aura of beauty and, and wonder, yet that's still limited by the intense infinity of God. We want a God that helps us become self-actualized, and so God becomes our therapist, hopefully curing our neuroses and psychoses, and so we can become more truly ourselves. And Jesus, every time, was that in some way, on some level. Sometimes he would choose to meet the lower needs of food and health and esteem and acceptance. Oh, gosh, the acceptance that Jesus met. He would provide for our cognition needs through his teaching and his preaching. But he came to us ultimately on the highest level of all, and that is a level of transcendence, as I said, selfless servanthood. He became like us, as somebody said, so we could become like him. God is way too small for us. Maslow said that about 2% of the population actually makes it to the self-actualization level. How many make it to the transcendent level Gandhi on some level, Martin Luther King, some a little bit. Jesus, fully, we say. If that is the case, then think how large Jesus, God, was. We may hover way down on the hierarchical chart, but even still we're able to see it that spirit that descends and rests on someone. When I was in Atlanta a while back, Bishop Tutu was there getting some health needs met as well as taking some courses at Emory. And so he would teach and preach around town. And in every single case, whenever Bishop Tutu walked into the room, the whole energy and spirit of the room was lifted up too close to his level, and we all saw it. We were all mesmerized by his incredible spiritual presence. 
We can see it, which is exactly what John was pointing out with Jesus and what the disciples saw as well as they began to follow him. In Jesus' presence, we're transformed. Now, this may be too simplistic, but I think that the world is basically, sorry for the stereotype, basically categorized or polarized by one end of the spectrum who believe that they have seen it all. That they know everything there is to know. That they haven't changed their mind on anything in 40 years, not politically, not religiously. That they are in this bubble of sameness. And they seek out confirmation of that sameness on the internet and through the television stations that we watch and through the people that we interact with. It's I've seen it all. And on the other end of that spectrum are those who say, sorry for the English, you ain't seen nothing yet. Which is a completely different worldview of being a lookout into the future saying, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know this, that somehow God and God's spirit is in the middle of it. And when it comes to us understanding what's possible, we ain't seen nothing yet. There's a psychological name for this. I've seen everything. It's called end of life bias that makes us think that whatever stage of life we are in and whatever we know, we finally found the answers to things without imagining the possibility that 10 years from now we might have our minds changed. When I graduated from college, I was walking around like a peacock with his feathers out thinking I had finally arrived and knew it all. And I was telling my grandfather this, who sat with the most gentle smile on his face, and now looking back, what he was thinking was, you ain't seen nothing yet. Certainly, we've not seen it all. Anybody who is in science will tell you we have not seen much of anything This morning I want to make the case that the most spiritually and emotionally healthy place for us, the most mature place for us, is to be on that we-ain't-seen-nothing-yet continuum. That what we are really looking for in following Jesus is not just to be loved and accepted, but also to be transformed and changed. Day by day, by little by little, Baby steps, Bob, as the movie said, into the fullness of the one who calls us. It's risky. It's challenging. But it's not as risky as withering and dying in place. For us to step out, we need some disciplines. We need biblical study and community of faith together. We need to be open to the Spirit moving among us, and we need to be prayerful. Standing on that, we are then enabled to be able to step out into the future with new energy and courage, without which we're scared to death. There is no growth 
without challenge, as every good parent knows. And every good parent will not let their kids stay in the same place. It's true biologically. It's true evolutionally. It's true psychologically. It's true emotionally. It's true spiritually. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, you see, not just because they disobeyed God, because God knew that if they'd stayed in that Eden-like environment, they never would have grown. And Abraham is called to leave his father's house with Sarah to the land that I will show you. That's all he gets. And Moses is called to lead the people of Israel out of slavery into the promised land for 40 years but they didn't have any idea where or what the promised land was. Every story, every prophet, every passage in the Bible in some way points away from the notion that we have found it. Unlike that bumper sticker, which ought really to say I'm still searching for it. This is a blessing. This is God's blessing to us. Because God loves us and understands us and expects of us a continued process of spiritual and emotional growth. Never is it absolute or certain or black and white or unambiguous or unarguable. But it comes through challenge and risk and stepping out. It's interesting that when Jesus asked those disciples what they were looking for, they responded with their own question, uh, or uh, so where are you staying? Which is not asking them what their address was. It is, in Greek, a more existential question. They're asking him, where are you? Who are you? Like, where are you coming from? And where are you going What Jesus gives them, of course, is one more challenge. He smiles and he responds, come and see. That's what we get. Come and see. From the first day we leave home to go to school, we had no idea what we were getting into. When we went off to Wherever we went, we didn't know. When we got married, we had no real idea what we were stepping into. From the moment we accepted our first job, we don't really know what's coming next. We are called to come and see. It's risky. What Jesus is inviting us to do is to have faith that God is out there with us, in front of us, to lead the way and behind us to hold us up when we fall, as we most surely will. But there is no real growth staying in place. We know there might be a cross in it, but at the end, there's the transforming power of the resurrection that will change us fully at the end of time into the image of God. Alleluia. 
that God will not let us rest on our laurels.